This is Dove Tuzman, and you are on Equal Footing. We've got a interesting show for you tonight on the psychometrics of the average police officer. We'll get into what is the average police officer in the first place, and what are psychometrics? Well, it's the psychological profile. It's you know what drives someone to be a police officer? What drives that professional dream? Uh, what are the things that in recruiting for police officers are sorted for, either sorted positively for or sorted out? And we're going to get into some of the more controversial stuff that's come up on this subject over the last several years, indicators that sometimes are disturbing around the psychometric profile of people that decide to pursue this as a career. But that dialogue has been dominated by criticism. And I wanted to give an opportunity tonight to veteran police officers to give their perspective on what brought them to choose this as a career path and maybe to give us a little bit of real candid uh, behind-the-scenes insight into their colleagues and the police community. Hopefully, our guests who are, are brave, and I uh, appreciate them joining us this evening, can be particularly candid in part because they're both retired. Uh, in one of the pregame conversations, one of our guests will introduce in a second said, make sure, although I was a police lieutenant and I served for 25 years, to be clear, I'm a civilian now, and so call me by my first name. Uh, not by my uh, official title, and and I respect their uh, ability to kind of reflect on the career they've chosen and some of the um, and address these issues frontally. So let me start. Let me just, without further ado, address uh, or introduce our guests. Uh, Rick, who's a, a friend, is here in the studio with me. Rick Califf. Rick is a 25-year veteran, 26-year, I think, veteran. Just, just under 26. Yeah. There you go, of the uh, NYPD. Yes. Has served in a number of different divisions. I remember in talking a little bit before the show, Rick, I was fascinated. Hopefully we'll be able to share with the audience a little bit of the different areas within NYPD in which you served, some of the experiences you had. Uh, Rick grew up here in the New York area and in, in Briarwood, Queens, not so far from uh, where we're, record, where we're uh, broadcasting from tonight. And he resides in Manhattan, where he's been over the last 20 years. He joined the force in 1994 at 27 years old, and he retired a couple years ago in 2019 as a lieutenant. And Rick really came into the public eye in some degree through a an op-ed that he wrote that was released in the New York Post in 2019, which, which I thought was very brave, which gave uh, his perspective on some of the issues within the NYPD and the reasons around his decision to uh, retire. Uh, it's also, for a lot of our audience, you know, this is not a Jewish show, but we are on a Jewish network. Uh, and so, you know, we uh, it's interesting to have a, a nice Jewish boy here as well. Rick is, a, uh, I, I would imagine, I'm saying this with a smile on my face, I would imagine it wasn't the, 
the um, the career that you were pushed into from your from your family? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, so that's an interesting perspective as well. And Rick and I share our love for dogs as well. Uh, Rick is a, a dog sitter, acts as a dog rescuer, volunteers for a dog rescue group, does home visits for dogs that are being adopted. I love that. And he has a an elegant, venerable 18-year-old basset hound named Benjamin. So, Rick, welcome to Equal Footing. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Now, on the line, we have a venerable voice in the area of police psychology. Dr. Robert Daly is calling into the studio. Dr. Daly... Uh, has been working for over 40 years as a clinical and forensic psychologist. Prior to that, he was also on the force, and even for some of that period, uh, he was on the uh, the, the NYPD uh, police force. He has a BA and an MA uh, degrees in, in forensic psychology from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice and here in uh, New York. He's a doctorate in clinical psychology as well. And he was formerly the chief psychologist of the New York City Police Department and has also acted as a senior consultant to the New York City Fire Department. He's lectured at the FBI, at the annual meeting of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Um, he has a private practice as a psychotherapist. He's also been a consultant to numerous law enforcement agencies, law firms, private security firms, etc. He's also testified as an expert witness in state, local, and federal courts and administrative tribunals over a 100 times. He's performed in excess of 2,000 forensic and independent medical examinations in cases ranging from homicide to personal injury, even to threats against the President of the United States. I, I could go on and on. He's also got a, a, a honor, honorable uh, honoris causa doctorate from the American College of Chiropractors, just a, a, a renaissance man. And, and Dr. Daly has um, decades of experience as well with respect to this very topic, the psychometrics of, you know, in the recruiting process, um, you know, what should be looked for and what should be uh, avoided in recruiting police police officers. So, Dr. Daly, welcome to Equal Footing. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Listening to all that, I've started to feel tired. <clears throat> <laughs> well, you guys both have impressive uh, bios, and I want to uh, thank you both for your service. And uh, hopefully that has special meaning um, coming from someone who has gone through his own um, experience in the, in the criminal justice system. And, and, I've, and I've come out of that actually maybe ironically or at least unexpectedly with a great degree of respect for the role that um, that police officers play. I think it's an incredibly difficult job. Uh, and as in every single career, there are going to be bad apples. Uh, there are going to be mistakes. Uh, that's just the nature of, of, of humanity. Um, but for in my experience, uh, most of, of the uh, law enforcement Individuals that I've interacted with, not all. Uh, we've, we had a show on prosecutors earlier this year, and that's a whole different kettle of fish. But on the the side of like community policing and so forth, I've had a, in my life an overwhelmingly positive experience, as I think most people have, you know, just anecdotally. And part of what drove me to want to do this show tonight is also that uh, I'll have a little bit of a reveal here that my cousin Liza, who I want to give a a shout out to just became a police officer. She just graduated and uh, what's what's the right term, Rick, when you're like anointed or whatever? <laughs> sworn in. Sworn in. That's right. Yeah, she was just sworn in a couple of weeks ago, uh, and so it's, uh, it's this is a subject close to my close to my heart. Okay, Doctor Daly, get us started. First of all, at a very high level, what does the is the is, what is an what is, who is the average police officer? Because I know we could 
She's everything from community policing to FBI agents over the cross the panoply of law enforcement. Let's let's get more you know granular. What would you say statistically is kind of the average police officer in terms of what they're doing and their their kind of psychological makeup? Well, you know, the successful ones tend to be you know similar in certain ways. They tend to be um, <clears throat> they tend to be gregarious people. They tend to be inclined to think for themselves. Uh, they are action-oriented rather than uh, reflective. Um, and, you know, within those broad parameters, there I don't know that there is, um, you know, a typical police officer. I think what, what happens is that you get young men and women um, coming, and they are young when they, when they enter, <clears throat> becoming involved in, in this career uh, and... Whatever latent abilities or skills they have, you know, combined with whatever opportunities present themselves to them, you know, in their training and in their you know, early experiences, and those and those, you know, that knowledge, those skills, those abilities tend to be enhanced over time. What are the so, things, Doctor Daly, that when someone applies to be a police officer, that will kind of exclude them from consideration? Well, certainly any any sort of mental illness would exclude someone. Um, uh, people who have, you know, a history of impulsive behavior, of um, exercising bad judgment on a repetitive basis. Now, you know, it, it's difficult to tell <clears throat> often, you know, early on because it, the the new recruits are always young people, and young people tend to make more mistakes than older people. Uh, there was a, you know, there's. What's the average age to, of, you know, of someone incoming <clears throat> into, the, into a local police force? I'd say in New York it's probably around 23, but it's it's young. You can, I believe, you can be appointed as young as 21. I know at one point it was down to 20, but uh, they they tend to be young, just out of school, just out of college. The ones who went to a four-year college. What do you have to have a so college degree or at least an associate's degree? Well, in, in New York City, you need um, uh, the equivalent of an associate's degree, 60, 60 college credits. Is that but generally that from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? Is that generally true across the country, either you know city oh, or it, state level? It, it varies. It varies greatly. I mean, one always needs at least a high school, you hmm. know, diploma in order to qualify. But um, and it, but it, and it goes up to you know needing a college. Degree. Some state police agencies, which are very selective, don't really require that you have, you know, a college degree or even any, uh, uh, any credit. They they figure they'll train you, right. you know, the way they need you, and just the entry process itself um, ends up meaning that that they're going to get people who are pretty intelligent and have been chosen to could have been successful in college. When you joined the force, Rick, what, what was the process in terms of? I imagine this physical entrance exam, but what was the the psychological profiling and interview process like? Uh, well, uh, well, first of all, uh, I uh, I applied for the I, – I took the test in 1990, and uh, it took a lot of years uh, for them actually to get to me. Uh, um, it, it, it was the, the basic application process where I basically had to recount my entire life, um, where, you know, where I've ever lived, where I've gone to school, 
um, what jobs I've had, was I terminated from those jobs, why was I terminated from those jobs. Um, and uh, it, it appeared like they wanted to see at least some form of stability. Um, they, I had, if I ever had a car accident in my life, I had to dig up the records. So they mm-hmm. kind of run you around and, you know, I guess they want to make sure that this is something that you really want. Um, I, I guess, um, as far as the, uh, you know, a- after going through the, uh, you have to go through a medical, you have to go through a physical. Um, they want to make sure that you can see that you're not colorblind, that you're not deaf, uh, or hard of hearing, I should say. Um, and, uh, you know, just, just the general physical requirements. Uh, I think one thing, uh, to point out is I came on, I was a little bit older. I was one of the older, uh, recruits in my academy company. Mm-hmm. You were 27? I was about 26, 27. I think I turned 27 when I graduated. Um, but in my company, um, uh, which is basically, um, a, a, like a classroom of people that you travel with throughout, you know, throughout a larger academy class. I was one of the older ones. And I think one point is, you know, as you're older, more things happen to you. Um, more jobs that might not have worked out, maybe more opportunities or more, more times you might have gotten a speeding ticket or a red light ticket or something like that. All these things mm-hmm. that they want to measure your character on. And, uh, um, but, you know, after getting through that entire process, which is uh, kind of a difficult one to, to get through, especially when you're a bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You have more more ex- opportunity yeah. to have made mistakes. I've, I've, I had transferred uh, to different colleges three times. I had a few extra speeding tickets. Sure. Um, they actually – There's more stuff on your resume. Exactly. Yeah. They actually held me up um, yeah. because of my driving record. Um, that was very important. And they said, you know what, we're going to hold you up. For about a year, and wow. uh, we want to see if you continue to get speeding tickets while you are being investigated. You get assigned an investigator who checks out your whole background. They knock on your neighbor's doors and ask what kind of a person you are. But um, I think, as far as um, uh, I mean, the application. Uh, I guess you were talking about the hiring process and mm-hmm. and, and the academy. Yeah, let, let, let's get into that a little bit, because um, Dr. Daly, if I understand it correctly, and correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, you've been part of the of the selection process, or at least outlining kind of some of the the rules and things to look for in the hiring process of the NYPD. Yes, for five or six years, for about six or <clears throat> six and a half years, I worked with the um, with the police department's the psychological services unit. And we were able to institute a program of pre-appointment psychological screening for, uh, for prospective police officers. And that involved um, the administration of a battery of tests and then an examination, a clinical examination by a psychologist. I think that's probably what you went through with. <clears throat> uh, the, the purpose of the testing um uh, often, 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 too much is made of the testing, or the assumption is that the testing will be effective in screening out uh, people and and or identifying you know, who's going to become a good uh, police officer. That test has not yet been invited, invented. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what ends up happening is that you, know, you use the psychological. Yeah, that's uh, just uh, sorry to interrupt. Way of highlighting. Sorry to interrupt you, yeah. Doctor Daly. And you know, we've talked about this a little bit on other shows. We've talked to other very high pressure careers that are prone to burnout, like uh, surgeons, emergency room doctors, uh, psychiatrists, etc. And 
for well over a hundred years, we've been looking for exactly the right way to profile for who's gonna who's gonna yeah. misstep and who's gonna burn out and so forth. It's, of course, it's it's never it's always a a, a tool that we haven't found one yet. Right. Yeah, right. But what so the about, best you're going to do is, is what about some of the things though that that uh that let's so we heard about like speeding tickets and why you might have left one job or one university to another. But what about things like do, is there sorting for uh domestic abuse for example? Is there a sorting for substance abuse? What what about some of these other areas that I would think would disqualify someone? Well, the substance abuse or, or something like that. It's going to come up in the, you know, if it's active, it's going to come up in the medical exams because they do, um, you know, the usual, you know, blood and urine testing and, and so forth. As far as domestic abuse and, and so on, uh, there's no way to screen for that except by the public records. Have there been domestic incidents, um, uh, reports filed on the individual? Well, you know, we, we can often get that from our, uh, uh, background investigators, and if so, how many? What would the and if and if so, the psychologist will want to go through those things chapter and verse and see. You know, number one, is there a pattern, repetitive, a repetitive behavior of this sort? And two, is it, um, you know, is it what, you know, what, what is the nature of the abuse? But is there uh, any is self? The, are the witnesses to it? Is there any self-reporting? Is there any self-reporting? I mean, is, or is there a psychologist asking oh. an incoming recruit, recruit, have you, uh, you know, do, yes. do you drink alcohol? Uh, have you ever had a domestic yep. altercation? All that is part of the process. All of those, all of those questions are, you know, are, um, are addressed in the clinical interview. And, and very often those things come up in the psychological testing or the questionnaires that we administer as well. So there'll be some response to that. That'll be backed up by the background uh, character investigator. Who will go through all the public records and so forth, and do his own, you know, interviews, um, you know, about the, about the person's background and what may or may not, you know, exist. You know, parenthetically, you know, what we found over over the years, and and I'm sure Rick, <laughs> you've seen this yourself, is that people are savvy to the use of the criminal ju- the police department and the criminal justice system as a way of getting back at their spouses. So oh, wow. just because the just because the, um, a domestic violence uh, uh, report exists, that doesn't mean that any domestic violence um, really you know occurred. It got to the point right. at one point when I was running the uh, the police department's uh, psychological Doc, unit. Doctor Daly, let's uh, sorry to interrupt you. Let's get back to, to that story if you can yeah. put it a pin in. And remember, we're going to take our first break. We're here with Doctor Robert Daly, who is a veteran police psychologist and uh, forensic psychologist with uh, deep experience in the hiring process and the psychometric profiling of police recruits in that process. Uh, former Lieutenant Rick Califf, who is a 25, 26-year veteran of the NYPD. Our show tonight is, is titled Mind in Blue. And what we mean by that is what is the mind of a police officer? What's the profile? Both what attracts people to be in the force and what are the things that are selected for, selected against? Are we doing it right? We'll be back on equal footing in a minute. If you want to participate in this conversation, ask any question. Ahead of the show, I asked Rick and Dr. Daly, is there anything that, that you feel uncomfortable talking about? And I, I had a smile on my face that said, no, anything. We've talked about anything. So uh, give me your best shot. We're talking about the psychometrics of the average police officer here on equal footing. The number to dial into is 718-303-9090. That's 
800-242-9090. You don't have to give your name on the air if you're shy. You can also text or WhatsApp a comment or question for the guests to 917-428-4062. That's 917-428-4062. We'll be right back. Kids with guns, take it over. I won't be long, they're mesmerized. Skeletons, kids with guns, kids with guns. Alright. Equal Footing, I love that song. Equal Footing is brought to you in part by DocuVax. DocuVax is a very cool, easy-to-use tool to store and validate your medical records. Your medical records, like vaccination records, lab results, x-rays, MRIs, blood serology, blood test information, etc., do not belong to your doctor. They may be facilitated by your doctor. Your doctor may have them at certain times. They don't belong to your insurance company. They sure as hell do not belong to the government. They belong to you. Most people have their medical records scattered on various computers and smartphones and in physical form and files. Get it all together. Sign up for DocuVax. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X, DocuVax.com, or you can find the DocuVax easy-to-use app on your Android or your Apple uh, app store, your, your iPhone's app store. And for as little as $6.99 per month, you can have all of your medical records in a HIPAA compliant, secure data facility and have it validated, that information validated by doctors and nurses who are on call for you 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to validate a vaccine record, a blood test result, or anything else in your locker. You can save money and not having to go to a general practitioner to get a reference. Take control of your medical file. Sign up at docuvax.com or go to your app store and your smartphone, docuvax, D-O-C-U-V-A-X, or you can call and sign up, 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. And when you're a docuvax subscriber, your medical data is never accessible to anyone else except you unless you want to share it privately using a proprietary QR code-based system, and this keeps your data secure at all time. So if you're walking into a restaurant or a concert venue, wherever you need to show your vaccine status, you can simply use a QR code on your phone and call up and show to someone that you have a particular vaccine or show a new doctor a particular blood test result without having to worry about showing your birth date or other extraneous information like your address and other things that the person asking may have no business knowing. So put an end to worrying if you or someone you care about is up to date on a particular vaccine, a blood test, or an important preventative screening. Take control of your medical file. Even get reminders on when you should do a new colorectal exam or breast cancer screening or a blood test, what have you, a new vaccine. Make it easy. Sign up at docuvax.com or call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. And if you mention that you heard about DocuVax on the Equal Footing radio show, and you're a small business organization, you can get group discounts to sponsor your employees to get a health benefit in the form of a DocuVax subscription. So sign up, DocuVax.com. I've been caught.
All right. I'm Dove Tuzman. You're back on Equal Footing. I'm joined by 26-year veteran of the NYPD police force, Rick Califf, and Dr. Robert Daly, who's a forensic and clinical psychologist focusing on police psychology. Join this conversation on the psychometrics of the average police officer in America. Dr. Daly, we interrupted your story before the break. Do you remember it? Oh, yeah. We were talking about um, allegations of domestic violence, which may or may not be, you know, true and accurate. Just to (laughs) refresh uh, listeners, this is is in the profiling process around recruiting a new police officer, whether Mm -hmm. they're, you know, whether the issue of whether there's been domestic abuse or domestic violence is looked into. Right. It, you know, I mean, it happens sometimes, you know, after an officer is sworn in as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, let me get back. No problem. <coughs> Rick, we'll, we'll, we'll let Dr. Daly clear his throat for a sec. Um, when my cousin Liza was going through the process of getting sworn in, and as I said at the outset of the show, she just became a police officer a couple of weeks ago. Uh, now, Liza is a gay woman. She... Uh, kind of grew up in prototypically kind of a liberal area in Philadelphia, is now working in a much more conservative, you know, part of the country in a different jurisdiction. But just confidentiality reasons, I probably won't mention her last name or Mm -hmm. location. But she talked about the fact that going through training, she felt very very much like the odd person out. Uh, and often she felt a little bit hazed, like, you know, there were people didn't necessarily want her on the force, or at least were testing her. And I remember talking to you in the pregame, you're talking about how when you went through training, and now we're talking about almost 30 years ago or 25 plus years ago, that many people you went through training with, as she was describing, were from like police families. Like they, they had, they were even union members, they had, you know, a, a relative or a, the parent had been a police officer. She was experiencing some of the same, same thing. How how good is the NYPD? Because I don't expect you to speak to exact you know her particular location. But how good is the NYPD about encouraging diversity of opinion and and thought and and you know perspective and race and ethnicity and maybe how it's changed over the years? Well, I think uh, I think especially now there's a lot more sensitivity than when I came on 25 plus years ago. Um, I think uh, um, I, I definitely experienced a feeling, certainly in the beginning, of uh, not belonging. I didn't come from a police family. I didn't know many police officers. It was just something that I decided to do, and it was calling for me for for a couple of reasons. Um, and uh, it was it was really a giant step. Because I had no encouragement from anyone, except later on I did have a friend with a similar background, and uh, he was a police officer, and um, he kind of, well, he took me out with him when he would, you know, maybe work, possibly work a detail, like a, a parade or something like that, and I would go hang out with him while he was <laughs> This is before you joined the academy? Um, yes, this is before I went in, and... Uh, I said, wow, this, this is great. The camaraderie, um, everybody coming together to achieve a certain goal, um, the uniform, um, it, it, it just seemed to me, um, a bit more of a valuable way to spend my life as opposed to what I was doing before, which I had gone, I've come out of college and gone straight into sales. Got it. And my That's dad, gotta be an unusual background for a new police officer. Yes, but I, I really think sales and good sales training 
helped me a lot, as well as my psychology degree, for a couple of reasons. A lot of times, in order to de-escalate a situation, you have to sell somebody on why it's best for them to walk away. And, 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 and it really is sales, because sales and psychology and policing, oh, sales and policing are all tied into psychology. It's relating to people, being sensitive to people. But most of your peers in the police academy, I imagine, did not have anything like that type of background. Um, you were describing that most of them were, or many of them were coming from like police families and kind of they were probably knew pretty early on that that's the career they were going to go into. Yeah, there were a lot, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of people who's, you know, were wearing their dad's shield and their grandfather's shield and working in their dad's or their grandfather's precinct. Um, and there was a legacy there, but for me, I was just stepping into something new, and I, I absolutely felt like an outsider. Dr. Daly, I hope this you won't be offended by this question. Sometimes in, in, in researching for this topic and, and, and reading, there's quite a bit of literature on the psychometric uh, profile of, of police officers, and some of it's disturbing. Let me hit a couple of these points. Uh, actually, let me start with a general personal question. It kind of concerns me, and Rick, obviously you're an exception. Uh, Dr. Daly, your story of joining the force is really interesting. Sounds like you're an exception too. I'd love to, for you to talk about that on the air. But your exceptions notwithstanding, if, if most young police academy recruits have always wanted to be a police officer, that's concerning to me. It's it, it somehow, I don't know exactly how to put my finger on it, but don't you in certain sense want people to come in that have a more altruistic view as opposed to kind of they've – or maybe I just have it wrong. Like, do you, do you, Is it concerning well, you have a you police recruiter and you say like have you – and they say oh, I've wanted to be a police officer since I was eight. Is that, a, is that a turn on or a turn off for the recruiter? It's neither. It depends on, on the setting. You know, how did, he be, how did he get that idea when he was eight years old? You know, perhaps he's – perhaps his father was there or an uncle – for police officers, perhaps his baseball coach was a police officer. You know, the exposure to uh, to policing makes all the difference in the world. I mean, I, you know, I came from a, a working class neighborhood, uh, and the idea once you finished uh, once you finished high school was to get a steady job. Well, the city jobs were steady jobs. The cops, the firefighters, and to a lesser extent, the Department of Sanitation were, were big draws. It was a steady paycheck. Remember, well, maybe you won't, but, um, you know, my family, you know, my mother and father were Depression-era people. So they did, so they encouraged, encouraged people to look for something that steady, not to be, you know, a big risk-taker when it came to um, came to one's occupational choice. But as far as the point that, um, that Rick was making a few moments ago, he used a couple of very important words. One was de-escalate, and the other one was sell. And those are two of the biggest words in police, uh, in, in police work. Because most of the, many times, the situations that you run into are bigger than you are. There's more uh, harm to be done by confrontation than there is by, uh, uh, by doing, by attempting in some way to de-escalate the situation. And for that, you have to be able to sell. You have to be able to talk to people. You have to be able to, um, you know, uh, understand where they're coming from and speak to them in such a way that they understand what you're doing there and what you're trying to accomplish. 
so that you don't get so that they don't experience you as coming out too strong or or something like that. I mean, I'm sure Rick had the experience. I certainly had it a hundred times of being on a job with a partner who's a little too chesty and is making things worse. Right. And the first thing I want to do is back him right out the door and say, listen, go back to the car. I'll handle this. Yeah. We're going to take a second break in a sec, but let, let me let me fire a couple things out to you. And, and one of this is informed by a listener uh, question. So uh, there are various various sources of data on partisan affiliation for police officers in the United States. And I, I don't know whether this includes uh, all law enforcement uh, officers or, or just police officers, but there's it varies between kind of 60 percent. And just shy of 70% in various, um, different formats of, of, uh, research, of police officers identifying as Republican, uh, versus, uh, identifying with the Democratic Party. Uh, that, that to me was interesting. I'll give you another, another, um, interesting data point. Um, 64% of Americans overall, uh, support stricter gun laws. Uh, whereas the most recent Gallup data is that 39% of Police officers in the United States support stricter gun laws. So let, let's kind of ruminate on those, on those two. It'll come back after the break because when you've got that okay. degree of disparity between the general public and those enforcing the laws within the, uh, the community that I think raises some questions. We'll be right back on equal footing. We're talking about the psychometrics of the average police officer. We're here with, uh, two, uh, veterans of the New York Police Department. Uh, who have expertise both in practice and in, in the academic sphere around the makeup, the psychological makeup of the police, the uh, police officers in the United States. We'll be right back on Equal Foot. Equal Footing with Dove Tusman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. I've been Hey, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tusman. I'm joined by 26-year veteran of the NYPD, former police lieutenant Rick Califf, Dr. Robert Daly, who's also a veteran of the NYPD and worked uh, as a young professional on the, ta- what is it called? The Tactical Pol- Patrol Force. The Tactical yeah. Patrol Force, which I guess is no longer around, but was the that patrolled the toughest neighborhoods of New York. And Dr. Daly has also for decades practiced uh, clinical psychology and forensic psychology knows a lot about the psychometrics, the psychological profiles of, of police people. Okay, we've now got some text questions coming in. We've got a caller in the line. Let's let's hit a couple of the points we talked about right before the break. Uh, number one, 
the large majority of the police force in the United States identifies with the Republican Party, whereas it's split much more closely down the middle for the general public. Is that a problem, Rick? Um, I, I mean, it hasn't been for me. Um, um, I, I remained impartial and uh, in, in, in uniform. We don't speak about anything political. Um, I'm from the school of, you know, um, th- there's no reason to advertise which way I lean politically. And certainly you're prohibited in uniform. Right. Dr. Daly, is there any attempt, at least in the NYPD or maybe other jurisdictions you're aware of, to try to have the police force be roughly representative of the community they police in terms of partisan affiliation, ethnicity, racial well, uh, diversity, et cetera? Well, that's been going on, at least in New York, which the department or the city that I'm most familiar with, that's been going on for 30 years and, uh, with more heavy recruitment in um in the attempt to get more minority group members uh, of the police and lowering the height requirements, for example, to enable more people of Hispanic origin or women to qualify for the job of police officer and so forth. And it's, you know, it's terrific that uh, it's been as successful as it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to control that from the government side. Um, because you can only try to make it as attractive as possible, then the people have to, uh, you know, have to want to, you know, join the police department and do this kind of work. Uh, these days, that, that, there are moments when, or times, periods, when that becomes increasingly difficult. With all of, with the just the whole COVID crisis, with all the police services becoming sick. Well, let's the, see. What, uh, what about what about gun ownership? Because I can understand how it's very difficult to control for partisan affiliation. And by the way, we already got a couple yeah. of interesting texts on this from. Two former police officers, one current police officer, sorry, and one former, I want to get to that. But Dr. Daly, 64% of the American public in the most recent Gallup poll data uh, prefer stricter gun laws. Only 39% of current police officers, it doesn't say former, so maybe it changes after years of job or after you've been retired, but only 39% of police officers support stricter gun laws. What's up with that? Well, police officers are on the inside of this issue. They, they're dealing with the, with the gun laws and the guns on a day in, day out basis. But I don't think that, wouldn't that militate to the opposite? I would have thought, I would have thought they would have no, been more all. supportive of stricter gun laws. The problem is not that we don't have the stricter gun. The problem is that, uh, the laws are not enforced. So whether you have the laws or you don't have the laws, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, what you end up doing with the stricter gun laws is removing guns, and this is a a common argument that police officers make, you end up removing guns from the law-abiding people. The, you know, the criminals are not going to give up their guns just because you have a law. Right. Okay, that's an interesting perspective. So you have, like, you know, law-abiding armed citizens, as opposed to, you know, the law's not going to affect... Sorry, Rick. Sorry, Uh, getting back to the whole Republican-Democrat and being, uh, you know, having diversity uh, as far as... uh, as far as that, I, my question would be, uh, is when, when police officers come on at a very young age, have they already decided if they're Republican, if they're Democrat, has being a police officer um, swayed them a certain way? I mean, I've been asked, I'm a, I'm a Jewish kid from New York City, how am I not a liberal? <laughs> you know, and, uh, well. you know, I, you know, I, 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 I like uh, like the doctor said, you know, we're on the inside and we see what's going on. And I think it kind of sways us a certain way. And 
Uh, I think that kind of happens after the fact. I could be wrong, but to that last point, and, and Rick and I, I Daly, let's get to let's get to a couple of uh, listeners. So uh, anonymous, and I do know what state this is coming from from the area code, but they don't say it. So I'm not because anonymous writes, "I'm a current police officer here in one of the western states, and I can confirm that most cops generally go Republican." But I'd say the majority whom I know and work with have a fairly socially liberal out- outlook after they spent years on the job. And this gives them a bit of a libertarian streak to their general level of conservatism. Most people don't understand that. Rick, does that resonate with you? It, it does. I mean, I'm very socially liberal. Um, why, why did this particular saying, it sounds to me from, I can't divine, you know, where this, this listener is coming from, but it sounds to me reading between the lines that they're saying that, that socially liberal outlook is actually influenced to be more liberal on the social side from years in the job. Is, is there any reason for that in your view? If that's, uh, I mean, I could speak for myself. I think, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I like to think I'm a very empathetic, compassionate person and I like to live and let live. And, um, I think when you see a lot of diversity, especially in this city, it's kind of forced upon you. It only makes sense. Right. Sorry, Dr. Daly, I think I interrupted you. Uh, well, you know, I was agreeing with what uh, Rick was saying a few moments ago, but I think so far as, you know, that, that officers, uh, Western officers, uh, point of view, I would tend to agree with that. I think, I think the drift, uh, you know, police officers tend to be conservative and, 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 rep- and so they identify more easily with the law and order, um, uh, perspective of the of the Republican Party, which is just a, a party of freedom, and more a party of uh, restriction to to use <laughs> probably unwarranted generalizations. Um, let's get to let's get to one being, more comment said, here. Yeah, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just 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 to finish the point. Um, that being said, I mean the drift is towards is towards a more uh, conservative and controlling, if you will. Um, point of view uh, in the early years, but then you know I noticed that he said libertarian, not liberal, and the libertarians tend to be more. Uh, well, that, that's what they alone to live my life. That's what the text. That's what the listener said. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, we've got a, a message here as well from Tim O'Pry, who, who calls himself a retired cop, geek, and serial entrepreneur. I love that <laughs> intro, Tim. Uh, he says, while I would concur with others that today most U.S. cops tend to be fiscally conservative and socially moderate, my parenthesis, this is fascinating to me, I wouldn't have guessed that, with a penchant for smaller government, the categories of Republican and Democrat uh are avoided on the job. We all avoid either label. So that, yes. that ab, ab, and is ab, that true in the locker room too? Obviously, I would imagine on the street, but is that true behind the scenes? I got You have a smile on your face. Well, I, the truth. I, I think in the locker room, being that the majority are Republicans, mm-hmm. I think we kind of just support each other in the locker room and what we believe. And um, most of us, I would say, are uh, leaning very much toward the right when it's when we're you know work law and order. You know, and, 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 and the loosening of the laws and the rules and the prosecutions are very frustrating to police. And that kind of bonds us together as a unit, uh, because the, the, the support system is gone. These are, this is fascinating. It's, it, it, there is a part of me that's disturbed by that because it feels to me like there should be, I, I guess ideally, and I get that it's hard to control for, but there should be, it should be more balanced because the society that's being policed is more balanced. But let's hear what caller on line five has got to say. You're on the air. Yes. Uh, happy Hanukkah, Dolph. 
Stan. How are you? Happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah Sameach. Nice to hear your voice. <laughs> and, uh, happy holidays to the gentleman. Christmas, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what they are. <laughs> we got we got everything being celebrated here on the air tonight. Okay, I just want to wish everybody happy holiday. Get it over with. Gentlemen, uh, this year and last year have been absolutely the worst for policing in this country. Uh, they have never been under the microscope as they've been this year and last year. And we're talking under the microscope. Uh, what has happened in the last two years has put a absolute view on policing in this country, both positive and negative. But the key point is, a lot of, especially with the George Floyd situation, the selection process has been a disaster on the type of people that are on in the street. For good or bad, they've been good, but mostly it's not been great. At least in New York, it's been a disaster. They don't, they, since this last year, they haven't, you can't find a cop to do anything. And that's because, I guess, of the, you're talking politics in the city. But nationally, uh, policing is under the gun. And not, deser- not necessarily deservedly so, but in, in some instances, yes. But I wanted to know if the selection process, I'm more for people who have been in the military, rather than in high school and college, who really don't know the street, really don't. And I'm wondering, you, you see what's going on here. Not, not, oh, there's negative and positive. What do you see uh, uh, as the cause for it? As those, besides uh, there's racial this and that, we know that. But it also comes from the, the, uh, the selection process of these type of people. Stan, so I'd like to get me, your point. Let's break what? it down into two. So I hear you asking, let's go to Dr. Daly, since he's been involved in police sure. recruitment and creating the psychological tests right. around that. Dr. Daly, to Stan's point, what's better, someone with a college degree who may have studied uh, you know, criminal justice or someone who doesn't have a college degree and hasn't studied that but has been in the military, which, which would be more likely to pass the bar, pass the entrance exam? Well, <clears throat> Personally, I would prefer the military experience, successful military experience. Not everyone has one of those, but a uh, successful military experience and, and um, an honorable discharge. I mean, what that, you know, in essence makes a statement that the person has been able to, you know, uh, live away from home and, um, and work with authority, work on a team, and be successful at it. You know, it doesn't have to be. A rip snorting success, but he's been able to uh, mature, and that's one of the things that uh, that an army service, that, uh, that a military service, does do for one. Uh, I think that you know, you know, college is you know is interesting, and 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 criminal justice, if you kind of think, is great, but it but it um, but it doesn't, but it extends your childhood. Right. So that when you finish college at 22, you're in the same spot as somebody who just finished high school, but without the, and without the military experience, you're you know in a sense less equipped mm-hmm. for that kind of a job. And then it all depends on the select. Then the selection process becomes all the more important, and the training process, and the weeding out, uh, you know, the extended mm-hmm. probationary periods and and so forth. Right. Um, what, what about but, what about know, the other component? Of, of Stan's question or, or comment, we're saying like it's never been been worse over the last I, couple of years in terms of I'm gonna I'm paraphrasing Stan here, but the relationship I guess between the general public and 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 community police. You, well, you agree with I that? Mean, well, I, what I was gonna say was um, you know I, 
you know, Stan, uh, you know, hit the uh, nail on the head because, you know, the job has become less desirable. And, you know, if I can, uh, you know, direct, you know, Stan to the article that I wrote uh, into the New York Post, um, I kind of explain why um, the job is having difficulties and I no longer wanted to stay. I mean, I, I thought I would stay forever, but it became very difficult. And I think when the job no longer becomes desirable, then recruitment becomes in a real issue. Right. And it took me four years to get hired. Uh, last I heard, they were turning people around in, in six months and deferring their, their investigation, their background check, and then finding out all these wacky things about people's backgrounds um, uh, after the fact. And I, I think that's a problem. I think when the job has problems and it becomes less desirable, you sort of loosen up the requirements to get this job. And this is And then not, you're looking for trouble. Right. Yeah, then then you're in a lot of trouble because this is not the job where you want just the mediocre people that will suffice. You you, you want people making good decisions with a level head and um, with the, with the right demeanor for the job, and you know, back to the other thing, you know, you, we, when the age uh, requirement was twenty, you know, you had, you had kids living at home with their parents coming right out of out of high school or or college, and you know, coming in, and and maybe they live far, maybe they came from way upstate New York or way out on Long Island, and they're coming into the big city and they're trying to police here and yeah, that's always seeing all the one. diversity and the cultures yeah. and things that they might never have been exposed to, and it's a problem. Yeah. yeah. This whole issue of, of police staffing coming from outside of the communities in which they police is a national discussion, probably a topic for another day, but definitely uh, important. Thank you, Stan, for the call. I don't mind plugging your op-ed, Rick. I'm going to do it. So look up online, Rick Califf, last name K-H-A-L-A-F, September 3rd, 2019, wrote a very interesting, I'm not saying I agree with everything in there, but a very interesting op-ed in the New York Post in the context of him leaving a 25-plus year career in the New York City Police Department. And I give you kudos, Rick, for being you know out there and stating your mind. And I know a lot of people have, have read it, and it, it brought you into the public eye for good reason. And, so. and I, I wrote it because after I retired, I was allowed to write something like that. I was allowed to voice my opinion. Right. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. In law, that's a whole topic for another show oh, yeah. about how on both sides, on all show, on all sides of the criminal justice system, you know, judges, prosecutors, defense lawyers, defendants, police officers, you can't talk about this stuff while it's happening in most in most instances for legal reasons. Mm-hmm. We're going to come right back on equal footing for our last segment. Interesting discussion. We're calling Mind in Blue, Psychometrics of the Average Police Officer with multi-decade experienced forensic and clinical psychologist, police psychologist, Dr. Robert Daly, 25-plus year veteran of the New York Police Department, uh, former Lieutenant Rick Califf. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. Mr. Officer, look it, Officer, what's happening? You beat another black man's ass and now you handicapping, friend. Do I have to move to River Oaks and bleach my f***ing so I can look like these white folks just to get some assistance? Because the brutality- Props to our producer for picking some interesting uh, music and for picking the non-explicit versions. Uh, uh, you know, for tweaking a little bit where with the, actually that was very apropos to our last little discussion there on kind of the, the racial and ethnic mix of the police force policing a particular community. All right. I got to get to this important promo. Manhattan Medical has been a great sponsor for DocuVax over time and Manhattan Medical has a very important message for you. If you're anybody who's in a couple and is dealing with erectile dysfunction, it is something that's very difficult to talk about. There are solutions out there. 
that are not those expensive blue pills, which often have side effects, don't work in a lot of patients, and some people, because of comorbidities, cannot use them. There's a new effective therapy that Manhattan Medical and others are using. It's called Gainswave. And the gains wave therapy is non-invasive, it's surgery-free, it's painless, and it can help you achieve excellent results at any age and with any medical background. And I want to be clear, if you want to deal with erectile dysfunction, which you need to, there are solutions out there. If you're dealing with that as a man or in a couple with a man, you can get help anywhere in the country. It says the name is Manhattan Medical, but they do telehealth consults anywhere in the country. And if you say you heard about Manhattan Medical's gains wave therapy, for erectile dysfunction, on the Equal Footing radio show, you get a free consult, and that is a real $250 value. So call Manhattan Medical. No side effects, and for most patients, wonderful results. The number is 888-EDCURE9. That's 888-EDCURE9, and in numbers, that's 888-332-8739. 888-332-8739. To find out about Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave Therapy for Erectile Dysfunction, mention that you heard about it on equal footing and you get a free consultation anywhere in the United States. Again, Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave Therapy for Erectile Dysfunction, 888-332-8739. Call now. I've been You're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I want, I don't want this hour to end. I have so many more questions to Rick Califf, 26 year veteran of the New York City Police Department. Dr. Robert Daly, clinical and forensic psychologist focusing on police psychology. I've had several callers we're not going to be able to get to. Some text questions. Try to, uh, buzz through a few. Okay. So Dr. Daly and, and Rick, this was fascinating in preparing for this show. Only about 4% of the shift time that's spent by police officers in the United States is in response to violent crime. The vast majority are responding to non-criminal calls. I'm sure you guys are, you're nodding. I'm sure you guys already know this. I didn't know this. The vast majority are responding to non-criminal calls. And in fact, many of those are proactive. In other words, 911, emergency calls, medical or other, a lot of domestic uh, abuse and domestic altercation issues, a tremendous amount of uh, drug related uh, re- response that isn't violent. Um, uh, traffic stops make up about 19% actually of shift time across the United States. 4% is made up response to violent crime. And I get that that is where the most danger exists and arguably where there's the most risk to society. But here's my question. Dr. Daly, are we properly selecting police officers for experience dealing with mental health issues domestic altercations, uh, substance abuse, because that's, you know, even how to deal with a traffic stop. I mean, these are the vast majority of police time in the United States. None of these things, or very few of these times, actually require a gun. And in a lot of those situations, someone's walking up with a gun in their hip, it may exacerbate the situation. So I know this is part of the national discussion, but, you know, you're retired. Be very honest with us. Are we selecting properly for what people are actually spending their time on? Well, uh... There's, there's no way to select properly for any for any single individual who's going to be able to handle all of those things well, coming right out of the box. What you try to select, what you try to select for, are healthy, you know, intelligent young men and women who are trainable, uh, and then you try to give them the, the training that they need 
in order to meet but, these. Yeah, you know, various, I'm going to push. Uh, I'm going to push back on that. Well, I started my career at Goldman Sachs, and I was part of the recruiting university recruiting team. We recruited a number of colleges, both Ivy League schools and state schools, etc. And we had a, a set of things that were very particular. If we knew someone was going to work on an Excel spreadsheet most of their time, we made sure that people had an affinity for and hopefully some experience working with Excel. It seems to me like a cop-out, no pun intended, to, to say, like, oh, we can't select for that. I mean, can't you have people that have on their – at college well, have yes. studied courses on mental health or have taken – can't you in, require well, a training that has to do with how to deal with the domestic altercation? Absolutely. And then and then what you should do is hire a social worker to handle those kinds of problems, the family disputes, the mental health issues that very often occupy and you – know, uh, uh, part of the police officer's time and so forth. Yes, you can you can do that, um, but then you're going to have you're going to expect that person to fulfill other roles as well. It may be only four percent that they're dealing with the violent crime or the victims of the violent crime, which is really most of it. Um, but you still have to have someone who's capable of doing that and capable of doing all these. And that's why that's why selection using testing or any other kind any other method. Uh, it's not as simple as selecting for um, you know, proficiency at, at, at a spreadsheet. It's there are just too many different things: a traffic cop, a detective, um, you know, someone who handles family disputes. The, so, to, all, to, to, to Dr. Daly's, pardon the interruption. To Dr. Daly's last point, a, a, a publication is not known to be particularly liberal. The Wall Street Journal uh, recently, in one of their op-eds, suggested that in excess of sixty percent of community policing is in response to situations that would be better handled by a social worker, which is a part of, yeah. I think, embedded in Dr. Day's last point. Rick, quick yeah. reaction to that. A uh, quick reaction is that if it's a dangerous situation um, and and somebody's going to get hurt, there's a weapon involved, um, then you need the police there. And it, it's unfortunate, but sometimes we have to use necessary force. And the public, it, it, the optics aren't great. People don't like to see a, a a sick person, a mentally ill person, being wrestled to the ground, or you know anything like that. Uh, but getting back to what we were talking about before, you know, I, I spent most of my career on patrol in neighborhoods in the West Village, the Upper West Side, um, Midtown, and you know we respond to all kinds of things. And car stops are probably, you know, we call them traffic stops. Like there's just a traffic infraction involved. They're one of the most dangerous things a police officer right, can I did do. read that too. Uh, that, yeah. That's number one. Number two is... We should go to the European model maybe where it's like so much of that is camera enforced. But yeah. oh, Sorry, we're going to run out of time. Quick, your number, your last point. Um, well, I was just going to say we go through ongoing training as to how to deal with the mentally ill and you just never know what to expect and you have to be prepared for the worst. And if they're just going to keep, if the other agencies are going to keep putting them out there, eventually the police are going to have a bad interaction. We have to do something with the mentally ill that they don't become a police problem. They have to be taken care of. Yeah, we've had a number of texts, and I apologize to Timothy Bell and others that have written in that that had questions on this on this point around uh, you know the cops answering uh, mental health issues. So we're just we're just going to be out of time. I would love to have you guys back on the program, um, and here's here's how I'd like to just end. I want to I want to I want to appreciate everyone who is obviously a number of former and current police officers listening for your work, and I want to invite. Further discussion, both in this show and general in our communities around how we can better select 
uh, for folks on the force and how we can be more uh, inclusionary. It starts with folks like Dr. Robert Daly and Rick Califf, who are longtime police force veterans and are being open and willing to talk to, to, to folks about the mind in blue, the psychometrics of police officers. Thanks for joining Equal Footing. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die.